Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the role of Agent Orange in certain cancers with Dr. Rory Shallis. Dr. Shallis is an assistant professor of medicine in hematology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Rory, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. Originally from New Jersey, um, South Jersey in, the, in particular, for those that know there are a difference. Um, graduated from Rutgers College with a, a BA in cell biology neuroscience. Um, medical degree at the same place, residency at Brown, and then fellowship uh, in hematology oncology at Yale. Um, was privileged to stay on as faculty and currently in the role of assistant professor. I currently specialize in the management of um, acute myeloid leukemia and myelodysplastic syndromes, otherwise known as AML and MDS. Um, so that's generally my, my practice. Tell us a little bit more about your research. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, my research is mostly focused, as I said, on patients that um, are unfortunately afflicted with AML and MDS, um, but on, not dissimilar from other uh, folks that consider themselves specialists in this area. I do see, you know, a fair bit about uh, a fair bit of patients with um, uh, other myeloid malignancies and other forms of leukemia as well. Most of my research is in uh, is by way of clinical clinical trials, but I do maintain uh, an interest in outcomes research as well and. Uh, perhaps, uh, you know, on some of the topics that you wish to speak of. Yeah. So so why don't we dive a little bit more into myeloid leukemias and, and you can tell us a little bit more about what they are, what causes them, how common they are, um, what the prognosis is. Sure. Um, all, you know, pretty important questions and all could be pretty lengthy answers, but I'll try to summarize it as best I can, uh, especially just considering, you know, what I presume is going to be the audience um, here. Uh, myeloid leukemia is a general term, actually, and, and, and taken simply refers to a malignant state of the white blood cells, more specifically those that are not lymphoid, two general types, and this is not perfectly stated, uh, uh, of white blood cells, myeloid and lymphoid. The myeloid group of cells originate in the bone marrow or the essentially what I tell patients is the factory for uh, where these are made and once assembled or mature, leave the marrow to enter the bloodstream and, and perform their duties, including fighting off infections among uh, a few other roles. Uh, this is a near continuous process. Unfortunately, this process can be disrupted by a number of mechanisms that basically injure the machinery that make healthy myeloid white blood cells uh, that can cause uh, a ruckus on the factory floor so that they're really not made in the same quantity, but also the same quality, uh, we think. With enough injury to specific parts of, of that machinery, the process uh, can be stalled entirely in certain areas where you know they are. Um, there's a backlog of the of the myeloid white cell building blocks or precursors that we call blasts. When in excess, this generally heralds a, a typically aggressive form of disease, and at a certain point defines what we call an acute myeloid leukemia or AML. Uh, not every form of myeloid leukemia or or even AML for that matter are, are identical. So you know this might be related to the fact that there are different parts of the machinery, whether they are specific genetic mutations in these cells or disruptions of larger portions of, of these cells' DNA called uh, the chromosomes are detected and, and drive the cells towards this uh, 
usually unequivocally problem problematic state. Um, how common are, are they? It's, I mean, it's all relative. Um, you know, in, in the hematologic malignancy world, um, there are some that are more common than others. When it comes to MDS and AML, generally, uh, we we regard the incidence as being in the in the order of maybe three to four per hundred thousand population or person years. Um, so. I wouldn't call them rare, but I wouldn't call them common. Um, and the prognosis for each of these diseases, there's a lot of variance, and this depends on really a lot of variables, and some of which we're really refining, you know, progressively, and perhaps some we haven't even really figured out just yet. Um, it can range from, you know, uh, from just a patient being recommended for observation. You know, it's something that can be regarded as a chronic illness, like you know, blood pressure issues or cholesterol issues, and often doesn't really cause any problems. Um, conversely, there are patients that, you know, have disease which is clearly aggressive and comes with a whole host of problems for which we have to be a bit more aggressive in our in our management approach. And so what what causes this? I mean, when we think about other kinds of cancers, uh, sometimes we know an etiologic factor. So, for example, I think everybody kind of knows that smoking uh, can cause lung cancer. We know that exposure to sunlight can cause melanoma. We don't know too much about AML. So talk a little bit about what we do know and what we don't know about factors that cause this. Great question and, and happy to help. Uh, there, there is evidence that some AML is what we call, quote unquote, de novo, meaning it arises, quote, from nothing, end quote, to take the Latin literally. But really, every, you know, every day our marrow stem cells and their, their cousins or related cells are replicating and there are inherent errors in the DNA that come about and are usually, you know, repaired via our really innate mechanisms, but sometimes these aren't repaired. Um, you know, so this is where some of this machinery can be damaged and put the cells on the path to become leukemic. Um, so it's really through no fault of, you know, of their own, but this is still kind of a, you know, a, a theory. Um, beyond this, we do know that, you know, as you stated, there are several causes um, to these disruptions, to the biology that previously normal cells you know, can become leukemic. Um, probably the most well-defined, I would say, are exposures to things that are really meant to damage um, the cellular DNA and for and for good reason. These are certain chemotherapies and radiotherapies, uh, therapeutic radiation that, you know, is used to treat solid tumors like breast cancer, lung cancer, relatively common cancers, and for which these therapies, um, you know, are game changers. These are effective therapies and can cure a lot of cancer, but there's a small but appreciable risk that the marrow cells are exposed to these um, these therapies and, and the damage they 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 induce. Um, and these cells acquire these abnormalities, and this increases the risk of developing a, a myeloid leukemia. Um, Non-therapeutic exposures, which I think is more to what you're getting at, are also described, however. So um, one of the clearest examples of this are, uh, unfortunately, um, I don't want to say a good example, but I'll say a clear example, um, is, are the studies that have shown or, or looked at sort of the long-term outcomes of individuals that were exposed to the radiation from um, the atomic bomb explosions from, you know, the 1940s in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Um, this is particle radiation, specifically beta, beta particles, but also gamma radiation. Um, with regards to 
other forms. Um, there is electromagnetic, uh, electromagnetic radiation in certain settings that are implicated. Uh, Non-therapeutic chemical exposures are also shown in some studies, um, including benzene, dioxins, formaldehyde as well. Um, obesity has been linked to a slightly higher risk of AML. Other non-modifiable risk factors, as we call them, contribute as well, one being male, as there is a slight predominance. The other is age. Uh, AML is a disease sorry for saying, is a disease of the elderly. Uh, the median age of diagnosis is around 68 years, um, but the risk is higher the older you are. And this might be because people that have been on earth longer just have had longer time to, to be exposed to the things that, um, you know, we just discussed. So, you know, unpacking a few of the things that you mentioned, the first thing, and I'm sure that um, listeners who may be on chemotherapy for a variety of reasons or may have undergone therapeutic radiation for a variety of cancers often think that, you know, these therapies are, are really uh, trying to treat whatever their malignancy is, whether it's breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, others uh, that are, are more common. And so when you said there's a small but still appreciable risk of developing AML with these therapies, how small is small? And should people really be scared that they are now trading one cancer for another? It's a very, uh, very poignant and important question, and it's, it's certainly a relevant one. Uh, you know, the risk depends on a number of things, the agents used, the dose of radiation and to where these, you know, these agents are really being applied. Um, they're not very specific for tumor tissue. They're just hopefully preferentially, you know, damaging those cells, which are, you know, if they're malignant, are probably, you know, more apt to, to undergo the pathways that drive them to death in a good way, you know, for the patient. Um, but if I had to kind of give you a specific number, it's in the order of single digit percents, um, probably in the order of maybe no less than no less than 1%, um, but probably no higher than uh, than 9%, uh, depending on the setting. So, you know, uh, there's a difference. Hey, 1% is not 0%, and it's not 0.001%. There's always a, a risk-benefit calculation uh, on the provider side and always a risk-benefit discussion that should be had, you know, in conjunction with the patient, you know, before us. Um, hopefully, this conversation is open as it should be um, and thorough because this is, like I said, it's, you know, I don't want to call it a nominal risk. It is appreciable. Um, but as you kind of just echoed, you know, these are effective therapies that are shown to unequivocally increase the, you know, not only the risk of uh, the rate, sorry, of, of prolonged survival, but cure for many, many patients. And, you know, as it stands right now, these are still gold standards, you know, of care, um, maybe in, you know, the decades to come, you know, hopefully in the not too distant future, you know, the need for these therapies might be maybe pushed aside or slowly phased out with more specific and less toxic therapies. So, which brings us to one or two further questions to kind of unpack that even further. So, one is, you know, you had mentioned that the prognosis of AML really varies. And for some patients, it's just a, a chronic illness. It's, it's kind of, it just follows along just like, you know, hypertension or uh, something else. And it really doesn't cause a whole lot of problems. In other patients, um, it can really be problematic. Do we know whether the prognosis is linked to the etiologic factor? So for example, some people may be more willing to trade one cancer for another potentially, or, or even the risk of developing AML. If we knew that the AML that was caused by uh, people who had been exposed to chemotherapy for therapeutic intent 
uh, was really more of the benign, indolent kind of AML rather than the more aggressive. Do we know whether there's any linkage based on etiology? I'd probably say that biology matters. And when I'm, you know, it, that's sort of a, you know, a vague, a vague statement, but really it's, you know, what damage has been induced in these leukemia cells or the cells that eventually promote, you know, the development of leukemia. Uh, there are some exposures that are more classically associated with particular uh, you know, damage, uh, damages to the damage to the DNA of, uh, of these leukemia cells. Um, some uh, are unfortunately, you know, pretty well described as being um, predictive of stubborn disease um, when it comes to things like uh, prior chemotherapies and particular classes of chemotherapies, uh, as well as radiotherapy. There are these are therapies which are probably more associated with um, what we call adverse disease, um, adverse risk biology. Um, some things that can induce a lot of DNA damage or chromosome, like large segments of DNA, which are the chromosomes, um, can be you know just in and of themselves sort of removed, duplicated. Um, and there are some poor risk lesions, specifically one in TP53, which uh, unfortunately is uh, among those that are the kind of the the worst to have in, in a leukemia cell among other cancers. And, you know, this is one lesion, which is unfortunately the most commonly observed across all the tumor types. Um, so it's not necessarily that the, the treatment itself uh, is in, independently predictive of prognosis. It's more, say, the uh, the middleman that induces the damage and the damage itself is really what predicts more stubborn, you know, disease biology, biology that would predict a lack of response to frontline therapies. And unfortunately, among patients that are, you know, fortunate to achieve some form of remission, uh, unfortunately, they don't stay in remission for that long. And so, you know, the the last question I'll ask you before we take our break is, in the patients with um AML who have a more aggressive form, is it treated with chemotherapy and radiation? And if so, couldn't that induce even more toxicity? Like, does this then become a vicious cycle? If you were to ask a leukemia specialist 20 years ago, this would have been a shorter answer. Um, you know, we're learning about the disease, about the biology of disease and how this can be sort of subgroup based on the mechanisms. And classical combination chemotherapy has been the gold standard for, for many patients since the early 1970s. And this is still the case for many subsets of disease. Um, this is what we call, quote, intensive therapy, end quote, meaning it has the pen potential to strain major organs, including the GI tract, kidneys, liver, heart, lungs, and it will undoubtedly injure the bone marrow, both bad cells and good cells. Just we hope the bad cells are the ones which are preferentially um, yeah, exposed and, and die. Um, as you can imagine, not every patient can accept these risks that come with intensive therapy. The older patient or the, the person that already has strained organ function um, might not be best suited to really um, receive intensive therapy. We do have less intensive therapies that are reasonably effective. And this has really served as the backbone upon which some of these newer agents, as you were alluding to, you know, have been studied and have been shown to be better and, and quite tolerable for the older intensive therapy, quote unquote, ineligible patient. This then fosters newer combinations and even the study of these combination therapies in younger patients, perhaps even those that are eligible for intensive uh, therapy at the starting line. We'll, we'll dive a little bit more into all of the exciting developments there Right after we take a short break for a medical minute, please stay tuned to learn more about AML, its treatment, and about Agent Orange right after we take a break. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. 
where you can view videos from their integrative medicine team by searching Yale Cancer Center Integrative Medicine Playlist on YouTube. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine. Quitting smoking is a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment, as it's been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital. All treatment components are evidence-based, and patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Rory Shalas. We're talking about AML and, you know, how this cancer of white blood cells really is the result of derangement of DNA that can occur due to a variety of causes. And we talked a little bit about the fact that one of those causes um, is actually therapies from cancer uh, treatments like chemotherapy or radiation, which inflict DNA damage. Now, all of us know that the majority of these treatments tend to be more targeted uh, towards cancers which are rapidly dividing. But what about people who don't have cancers and who are inflicted with DNA damage causing agents like chemical weapons or, uh, Dr. Shalas, you mentioned before the break, things like uh, radiation from nuclear accidents or, worse yet, atomic bombs like Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Can you talk a little bit more about um, how those have an implication in terms of developing myeloid leukemias? Sure. I mean, you, you said it quite quite nicely. There, unfortunately, many patients are, you know, unbeknownst to them and and folks around them, exposed to things um, that it might just take time, in the order of years to decades, to understand that these can be detrimental to the genetic machinery. You know, DNA damage and even some of the uh, the things that can influence the machinery that aren't necessarily DNA damage. Um, this is often uh, accidental. Um, there are you know, chemical spills, contamination events, and things that are used uh, in, in a weaponized sense as well. Um, there is also an implication that there are ambient forms of these potential carcinogens or leukemogens, you know, as we call them as it relates to the development of myeloid leukemias. Um, there are several examples, radiation we mentioned, things like dioxins. And, you know, um, you know, you had mentioned earlier at the break that you wanted to discuss a little bit about Ancient Orange as well. This is, you know, one of the most infamous, if not the most infamous sort of uh, vehicle by which one of these uh, agents, uh, leukemogenic agents, was delivered to, unfortunately, I would say innumerable individuals since we don't really know the full, the full number. So talk a little bit more about Agent Orange. What is it? Um, what do we know about it? What do we know about its implications in terms of developing AML? Agent Orange, uh, you know, pervasive term, but, uh, you know, in my experience, many folks don't really understand what it actually is. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's essentially, it's a combination of herbicides, two herbicides, herbicides specifically in one-to-one mixture, both of which were commercially available um, as early as the 1940s, you know, and because it was an effective 
herbicide. It was used by the U.S. military during the Vietnam conflict as early as, I want to say, 1961 or 1962 um, as um, a defoliant, meaning it would rapidly clear thick areas of vegetation to allow our forces to be more effective. Um, it was delivered by both air, but as well as ground. There were, you know, manual, uh, you know, applicants going on during the same time. Um, but the herbicide spray missions, you know, via aircraft were part of what was called uh, Operation Ranch Hand and an estimated it was at least 15, but they want to say 15 to 20 million gallons, gallons were delivered over these areas over, you know, the years that, you know, uh, the forces were in that area. Agent Orange, however, uh, was found, you know, unfortunately, it took some time to, you know, realize this was found to be regularly contaminated by a chemical known as, I'm not going to say the whole name, but it's abbreviated as TCDD. This is a specific form of uh, a benzodioxin. A dioxins, these uh, as a group, these are substances that are made up of two benzene rings that are joined chemically and really can be made unique by additions to, you know, usually through chlorine substitutions. Uh, unfortunately, TCDD um, is a known carcinogen and teratogen as well. One of the first means by which it was realized that Agent Orange was a delivery mechanism for a known toxin of this magnitude was the fact that these areas uh, of Vietnam over the next few years, you know, they did see an increase in the rate of, of birth defects and unfortunately a lot of stillbirths as well. Uh, further study, and this is mostly like lab and, and mouse-based studies in the United States, you know, around the same time, uh, given these findings clinically in those areas led to the appropriate conclusion that this was a problem. Uh, and the U.S. eventually did end these missions and the use of Agent Orange altogether in, in 1971. As it relates to cancers and you know i hope we do get to talk about you know its relation to we think and the myeloid leukemia realm a number of studies you know uh, you know that have found an increased risk of breast cancer gi cancers some lung cancers uh, kidney cancer you know these were well done studies that showed that were basically you know among patients that are sorry folks that were exposed to tcdd and not necessarily agent orange there is an appreciable risk regarding the hematologic malignancies or, or blood cancers which is my area of expertise um, tcdd is linked to an increased risk of both uh, high Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin lymphoma, as well as uh, another uh, malignancy known as multiple myeloma. The one rub is that, you know, exposure to TCDD is uncommon and the diseases of interest, you know, are also uncommon. And so, and some people also don't live long enough to get these diseases of interest. So, you're studying an uncommon among an uncommon with perhaps not enough time. And this is likely why some other studies have shown, quote, no increased risk to which, you know, many of us say, you know, have a, you know, raise an eyebrow. Uh, however, the weight of evidence, you know, in some is really clearly established that TCD is a known carcinogen, uh, its most critical designation, um, uh, you know, among uh, some of the very well-respected communities uh, and organizations. The most, uh, I'd say, weighted is the International Agency for Research on Cancer, or IARC, which is the agency of the World Health Organization um, and another relevant organization, at least, you know, for the folks, you know, about which we're talking, you know, veterans, uh, the Veterans Administration or VA also recognizes there's enough evidence to conclude that, you know, exposure to TCDD via Agent Orange, you know, was uh, was causative and, sorry, it was associated in some cases causally associated with uh, development of several cancers. And so if you're a vet and you're listening to this show and you know that you were exposed, um, what kinds of things should you be doing? So number one, um, are there particular tests that you should be doing in terms of screening? We, we know about screening tests for breast cancer and colon cancer, but not so much for leukemias. Um, 
Number two, uh, are there symptoms that you should be looking for? And number three, is there anything you can do now that the exposure's already happened to lower your risk? Good questions. And I would probably start by saying that, you know, more than the patient shares the burden, this is up to the provider to really be mindful of exposures, um, you know, including, you know, Agent Orange exposure, which at this point is usually well documented. In fact, the VA really concedes that anyone serving during a certain period of time in a certain area has been exposed to Agent Orange. Um, with regards to, you know, cancer in general, you mentioned some of the you know, the clear, you know, screening procedures for certain cancers. Uh, at the moment, uh, there's really no evidence to suggest that, you know, that these practices should be changed or altered in a way just based on an exposure in the past. When it comes to a new diagnosis of myeloid leukemia, like AML, or I would even consider MDS, you know, patients can come to attention in a number of ways. We do see patients who have, you know, as you said, quote unquote, routine blood work. And there are abnormalities that, you know, that eventually prompt an evaluation, but this is not common. Um, typically, there is a symptom that prompts blood work, whether this is something as nonspecific as uh, fatigue, but also shortness of breath, which is usually a consequence of anemia, uh, uncommonly bleeding, which is usually a consequence of low platelet count. Um, there are patients who present with other complications of the, of the disease, either by way of its inflammatory nature, such as fever or with true infection because of a lengthy and, uh, and low white blood cell count that predisposes a patient to such, unfortunately. Um, some patients, you know, do come to us much sicker with the clearly more aggressive forms of the disease. Um, you know, others, like I said, with an isolated asymptomatic blood count abnormality. Um, but the need for treatment is usually always, um, sorry, is, is always the same um, for pretty much every patient. Um, so at the moment, Exposure doesn't really buy the book by anyone, any change to sort of screening procedures. Um, but I would, as a provider, just knowing that there's a history out there, either documented or through, you know, our routine history and, and physical, um, just has me a bit more mindful in you know, looking out for things. And maybe in a biased sense, I do sort of change my, my monitoring practices from a CBC monitoring standpoint or, you know, looking for different things on exam that might lend weight to hey, we should be looking, you know, at this thing next or do additional testing. Is there anything that people can do to prevent cancers? Many, many patients um, kind of ask about that, right? Like, is there something that I should eat? Should I try antioxidants? What about hyperbaric oxygen? Um, what is your advice to to people who have been exposed to Agent Orange who are listening to this show and are worried about the fact that um, this increases their risk and want to do something proactively to reduce that risk? Important. Uh, it starts with establishing care. Um, you know, if we're talking about veterans in particular, uh, many are not really taking advantage of the services to which they are entitled. Um, you know, there is a, uh, a framework known as service connection um, that is, can be navigated with some of the patient advocates and the provider charged with uh, the care for a veteran, um, you know, especially one that was exposed to Agent Orange that can secure, you know, additional benefits just based on that exposure and anything that comes down the road, which at this point we can 
for the most part, presume was related to that exposure. Um, so it starts with just establishing care, um, you know, at the VA or, you know, if you're not a veteran, you know, another, uh, another facility that can provide really the same level of services. Um, what can be done otherwise beyond the things we, we talked about? I, I don't want to sound like a nihilist and forgive me for saying this, but it's, you know, it, and it's unlikely, it is, sorry, it's likely that there will always be cancer and, and always be AML MDS, mostly because of, kind of hearkening back to what you had just kind of mentioned, you know, the, you know, there are things that are natural, um, you know, the natural world in which we live is brutal and we're likely being continually exposed, uh, albeit at low levels to ambient things that are, you know, likely naturally carcinogenic, unfortunately, such as background radiation from, uh, from radon, for instance, which is the leading cause of the thought to be the lead, you know, the second leading cause of lung cancer, um, or cosmic radiation to which we will likely always be exposed to some degree. These are, extreme examples I'll give you, but I, I, I think they serve the point. This does not mean we should be lax in coming up with alternatives, you know, to spare exposure, you know, if we're talking about, you know, occupational exposures as well, um, as well as medical exposures or the ambient setting. Uh, it would be nice to have solvents that are as efficient as a starting material to make plastics, resins, and spare workers to benzene, uh, to which we really don't know the true quote unquote safe level, you know, which I think is a misnomer uh, or chronic low dose exposure that, you know, a body like uh, like OSHA, for, in, for instance, establishes. Uh, it's possible that there may be no safe exposure to anything out there which can be invoked as a carcinogen or leukemogen to bring it back to my uh, my area of interest. Dr. Rory Shallis is an assistant professor of medicine in hematology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.